Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Down with D&D. My name is Sean Merwin, and I am here with my partner in not crime because crime doesn't pay, partner in doing things that are not crime, Teos Avadia. Hey, Teos, what's up? How are you doing, Sean? Yeah, I have a little punchy. That's good. That's good. Somebody found the key to the liquor cabinet. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> there, there will be lots of opinions flying around today. <laughs> yes, there will be. All right. So with that, let's get right into the news. Baldur's Gate 3, Teos. Baldur's Gate 3. Yep. Looking forward to it? I'm going to have to wait one more week to look forward to it. Yeah. Um, I can't. I'm Honestly, I'm completely lost. All I know is there were like pre-orders, and I think a pre-order for the pre-order. And I don't know, the triple delta release is delayed a week? I don't, I don't You tell me. I, I, don't, I don't know. All I know is it's called early access. Okay. Early access to me... I'm not like a video game aficionado where I know all the ins and outs of releases and, and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see early access as the game is pretty much done. There may be some bugs, but here you go. Um, and because of some stability and localization issues, they are pushing back the release of the early access from September 30th, which is two days from this recording until October 6th. So it's not, much it's it's a week later yeah. but for for people like me who have been waiting for this uh it might be might be news and i don't have a lot of time for video games but this is one that i've kind of had marked on the calendar for a while um yeah. it's going to co- it's going to coincide nicely with my daughter coming back from college uh so we'll actually have time because she won't be able to go back uh hopefully until next semester so we'll have time. And how I'm looking forward to this so much that I actually, when I heard that Larian Studios was working on it, I went back and looked at games they'd made before. And uh, my daughter and I actually played uh, the, what, what, what is it? Oh, Yeah, I remember Divinity. you talking about this. Yeah, d- d- their Divinity game, just to see what it was like in preparation for this. So yeah. that's how serious I am about it. And you know, it's it's a it's a, just another way of hopefully bringing in more players to D and D. Yeah, I I didn't play the Baldur's Gate games, but I played the Ice and Dale ones, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm looking forward to this as well. I don't particularly care for the way the video game industry does these. You know, they mix marketing with the alpha beta release mm-hmm. system and all that, and it gets I don't know, it just I don't like it. Uh, I'm just glad they didn't offer some sort of a miniature for it, so I could be swayed by that <laughs> <laughs> all they had to do so, someday i'll realize that everyone's playing this and at that point i will buy it probably a on three, sale so it'll probably a, end up being a, a good idea all they had to do was offer a three cent piece of plastic to Teos. yeah that's what they could have done he, like, he like that, um, there was that sword coast game that came out yeah sword coast legends or something it was not yeah. particularly good oh. uh, and i i did manage to not buy the giant figure um i I later got it off of ebay really cheap but yeah yeah i i bought i reinstalled steam on on my pc just uh just to be ready for this and i saw all the old games i had purchased and that that sword coast legends was one of them and it tells you in steam how long you played it. i think it was like 30 minutes yeah (laughs) i'm like well i i guess i wasn't too impressed with that (laughs) yeah yeah it's unfortunate things happen well, let's go from video games to dreamscapes. Sly Flourish has written a blog post on how to run adventures using elements of dreams and time distortions and movies like Inception and Memento. Uh, what did you think about this? I loved it. You know, Mike, a lot of times is, is sort of a, I don't know, like a concrete person, right? Like, it, like it's tools and it's utility and, and he kind of zeroes in on useful bits, how to run things, how to do things. And this was sort of an unusual post for him, I I thought, you know, and that it's really sort of how to take things that are the opposite of concrete, how to take really abstract concepts and wacky ideas 
and make them work. And, and he, he runs through it in his typical toolkit fashion. He does make it very useful. So he says, you know, here are examples of how we can take a story and have it, have the players play through it sort of backwards as they sort of unlock what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's really neatly done. He uses an Eberron example to, which ties into dreams really well because of the whole dream plane in Eberron. Sure. Um, it's re- it's, it's re- I just thought it was a fascinating post and it's very useful because sometimes you see a movie like Memento where everything's done backwards and you think, that's great, how would I ever do that? And he right. writes the blog on how you would do that. Oh, nice. Yeah, Excellent. I highly recommend yeah. it. It's it's a super creative uh, piece and and it, but super useful. So it's it's awesome, and I'm I'm excited to, like this is one of these things I've filed into my brain, and at some point in a campaign, I'm going to do this right, or maybe even in an adventure, right? The right this sort of like let's do it backwards kind of thing and unlock things in this way. So, yeah, cool. I've I've always toyed with writing that sort of thing for the adventures. Uh, that have the the four you know one hour things but they're in order and you might play them out of order yeah um and so to be able to you know give the dm just here's what you do if you're sitting down with a player who's played the last one but not the first three yet yeah at a random table so maybe that maybe something like that would help dms who have to deal with that situation as well yeah and for home dms like honestly like if you if if you're it, it, I, I would recommend this blog, even if you just go and take the actual thing he writes and just steal that and run it for your group. Like, I think that'd be a great time. <laughs> a free adventure. That's a neat idea about sort of this, uh, you know, pirate ship and it's, and it's been taken over by undead. And, but, you know, the learning, the why of it is all played in sort of reverse sequence. And, and if, you, if you check out the blog, like that would be a great evening or a couple of evenings to go through those, nice. what he actually puts out there. Cool. And now we have our Teos and Minis corner. We should, we should like an, an echoing voice say that. We need a jingle, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. Minis time. <laughs> uh, yeah, WizKids announced their next set of Minis. So WizKids has in traditionally, you know, D&D, uh, whoever was doing their Minis, whether it was D&D or someone else, uh, the big thing was blind boxes. And they'd have some theme set and they release them in these square boxes that have five or so Minis in them. And you might get really lucky or you might not. And it's always funny seeing people on Twitter who decide to buy a box. And sometimes it's like the most amazing box. And sometimes it's just the saddest box ever. <laughs> that's just the way it goes with, with blind boxes. Um, that's the core thing of what WizKids does for D&D is to release these sets. And they announced their latest, which is Fang and Talons. Um, so it's kind of what you would expect for one of their in-between sets. A lot of time the sets are things like the current one is Icewind Dale. And it's all Icewind Dale themed or largely Icewind Dale themed. So this is one that's one of these in-between sets. They've often called one had like Monster Menagerie or something like that. Uh, so these include things like we saw a flail snail nice. uh, depicted there. That looks really cool. A mimic door, a fire <laughs> jount skeleton, and young red and blue dragons. So oh, those nice. look pretty cool. Uh, the blind sets, when they release the set, comes with a special mini. It used to be that you had to buy a case to get these. Now it's just sold separately because why limit it? Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a purple worm that looks very awesome. Wow. The purple worm is 40 bucks, and you can buy that separately. Um, very cool looking. Looks, looks fantastic. Link in the show notes. Uh, and then, you know, they also release these individual things like we talked about in previous episodes, big dragons and things like that. That's becoming more and more of a thing that WizGoods is doing. Mm-hmm. And speaking of accessories going on sale tomorrow is Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost, Maiden Dice and Miscellany. So it's similar to the other sets that they've done. I think they've done two sets of yeah. these dice and miscellany now. Um, this one contains, similar to the others, uh, 11 dice. So a full set of dice, including two 20-siders and four six-siders. A fold-out map, which is about 11 by 16 of uh, the Icewind Dale area. Um, a box that doubles as two dice trays. And then 20 double-sided character and creature cards. So if you are a DM or a player that loves accessories, not only do you have minis coming, you also have this. And the, the previous one... Uh, I didn't purchase, but I received it, and it was it was really cool. I mean, the dice looked nice, and 
all those accessories can be very handy, especially if you're running the adventure that it supports. Yeah, they had the Avernus one, which was really very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the, um, I can't pronounce her name. It was yeah. like Laurel Silverhand. Yeah. yeah. And, um, Laurel. Yeah. Uh, so she, uh, th- that's it. Yeah. It was a really nice set. And the, the funny thing about that set is that those dice work really well as an Icewind Dale set of dice. Like they, they kind of oh, look yeah. frosty because of the, I guess the silver type concept. Um, yeah, and I liked all the, the cards that come with it often have really neat lore. Avernus had a bunch of sort of demon-type lore uh, or devil-type lore. And then the um, the Silverhand set had some pretty neat uh, lore on different cities, including Icewind Dale areas. So, yeah. yeah, it should be a neat thing if you like this kind of piece. And it kind of, the box is its own dice tray, right? So that's kind of fun. And the dice are usually nice-looking. These look pretty good. So go out and get yourself, treat yourself to some dice and accessories. I wanted to mention the Dragon Talk a couple weeks ago uh, had on Celeste Conowich and Ashley Warren, two of the main writers on Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And for me, it was exciting because they rarely talk to freelancers, especially freelance writers. Um, even those who have worked on their official books. So to, to hear uh, them talk about some of the topics that are important to freelancers, especially Celeste and Ashley, who are two, you know, hardworking, wonderful, creative folks, uh, was, was special to me. Um, so good job, Celeste and Ashley, not just on the product, but on getting on Dragon Talk. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's awesome. And the second installment of the Traps article series by Greg Marks is up. We mentioned the previous one on Cobalt Press. Um, what was this one about, Tess? So this one just landed. So I, I quickly took a look at it. And what's fun about this is it, this is Greg Marks being very devious. Um, so so any, any cautions, the advice in this article was sort of, you know, be careful about kind of how you use the knowledge I'm giving you. Uh, because it's kind of, you know, we sometimes we say traps shouldn't be gotchas. And this is sort of like almost how to make them gotchas, but in a clever way. And what it, what the main concept is to use predictability and repetition against your players. So it's mm-hmm. the idea that you set up a trap and the, they, they may figure it out or they may not. But then you present what looks like the same trap again. So, you know, now you go, okay, well, we know how to deal with this. So we'll just do this. But it actually behaves differently. Mm-hmm. Or he gives an example of a crossbow trap set to a tripwire and the characters, is it very easy to see it. And so you cut the wire so that the trap won't go off. But what you don't know is you're actually dropping a block on the rest of the party that's hidden around the corner while the rogue disables this. Mm-hmm. So it has that sort of like Grimtooth traps, a little bit of gotcha to it, right? Yeah. And, and so... But, it, but it's fun. And he gives neat examples of, of two traps that kind of use these concepts plus walking you through it. Right. Yeah, that's something that I've started to do just a little bit um, is to put the trap, but the trap itself is trapped. So, you know, the, the, the DC-10 uh, investigation or perception check finds, that, finds the obvious trap. But if they don't get a 15 or higher, that's where the real trap lies. And you know, as, as I think if you, as long as you keep it where it's still reasonable to find, where it's yeah. still something that a cautious player might, might notice, then I think, I think it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and oh, go ahead. Now I was going to say this, this next piece is, is sort of interesting, which is um, David Fox of the Zweihander RPG published something that may be of interest to RPG creators and that is a, a thread on Twitter about how to do a DMCA takedown. I don't know if you saw this, Sean. I did not. So it's, it's kind of basically he, a few days ago, he was talking about a site that shares a whole bunch of uh, oh. copyrighted things. Right. And, 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 you know, I'm sure your stuff's on it. I know my stuff's mm-hmm. on it. it. Everybody's stuff is on it. It's sad. And there, there are a number of, you know, a couple of sites like this and you try to shut them down and they, you know they don't respond right and so what what uh what david fox does here is walk you through how to file this takedown of your stuff that shouldn't be on these sites Mm -hmm. so i think it's worth it for creators to take a look at this 
uh, because there's a lot of DMs Guild material that these horrible people put out there and try to profit from. So. Yeah, and and it's it's something that's becoming more and more uh, hurtful in in an industry that's growing. Yeah, uh, but, you know, it it was never right, but the argument before was well, you know, it's a million dollar industry in a world of multi billion dollar industries. So really, no one's trying to make a living at this. Everyone is just doing it for nickels and dimes. So this isn't hurting anybody. And well, that argument is specious and, and false and horrible to begin with. But, you know, as, as we see an industry start to take off, piracy could kill that industry unless these things are taken care of. Yeah. And, and these people are, are, you know, it's one thing when they were like disguising themselves as fans and maybe even if they thought of themselves as fans, but now they're doing things like running Patreons. Mm-hmm. For access and so it, it's like it's actually criminal right? <laughs> right yeah i mean it's always been criminal but that th- this is fully right, yeah right, like, ab- ab- above and beyond yeah, um, yeah. brazen i believe brazenly criminal yep so well thank you i'm gonna go i saw the beginning of that but i uh that thread but i did not read it through so i will definitely go check that out and that is our news for the week we will continue with our main topic, which is our look at Icewind Dale. We started two weeks ago with just a general background on the area. Last week, we began our deep dive into the book itself, and we will be continuing with that section, uh, the first section of the book that talks about just the general background and running a campaign in Icewind Dale. Yeah, and for those wondering about spoilers, you know, we're going to talk about some general features. And so, you know, if you if you don't want any spoiler whatsoever, then this is the time to stop. If you're okay with sort of hearing about how environmental things work, then you can go a little bit longer. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we're going to get into actual uh, discussion of how the book is structured, and you'll want to you know, bow out at that point for yep. sure. Um, it's also worth noting that PowerScore RPG, friend of ours, uh, we love the work they do. Um, they are, as usual, as they've done in the past, creating a guide on how to run this campaign. And they always do a nice job sort of translating what's written into what a DM needs to do. I think designers are also a good audience for this. Like, you know, to see how someone rewrites something for clarity tells you something about how it was written, right? Right. And so their, their guide is up for Icewindale. Yep. All right. So last time we left off with the wilderness survival section. So we've been talking a lot previous to this about exploration. And really what we're talking about here is exploration in Icewind Dale, how you can travel through the wilderness and survive it. So yay, exploration. (laughs) Uh, Here we go. Uh, I I like this section. Um, I love how the DM gets some tools to make Icewind Dale different than Chult, different from Avernus, different from the rest of the world. Because in a setting book, or at least a book that is partially a campaign setting, you want to give the DM those tools. Yeah, absolutely. This overall, when I, when I step back and look at this section, it's great. I love that what they're trying to do here to create um, things a DM can use to make the place seem inhospitable, dangerous, harsh. Um, I, uh, the, the, the specifics, when I get into the specifics, I have sort of questions and I'm not sure how well it works. Like it's all fine. It's all good. I would use these as written in my game and then I would probably modify them a bit on the fly as I see how they pan out. Um, I feel like these things to me overall feel a little rough in development. Like they haven't Mm. been play tested enough under actual play conditions is how it feels to me when I read them. Right. It's, it's odd because, you know, running a combat is pretty spelled out for you. Uh, You know, you know, when you roll initiative, you know, that monsters act a certain way, you know, the players get to do what they want to do and you can have some variation, but it's pretty much, a standard way to run combat. Yeah. Things like avalanches or things like freezing or things like drowning, while there can be specific rules, the experiences that an adventure want to show often call for those things to be different. 
So, and you know, I want an avalanche to provide a certain challenge and a certain experience for my players. So I will run it a certain way. Whereas if I was writing a different adventure and wanted a different experience, almost by necessity, I would need to have different rules for that avalanche. So that's what, that's where that struggle is. You want, you want specific rules, but you don't want specific rules. sometimes. Right. Um, Right. And, and well, and that's an interesting thing that here they have taken an approach to codify, you know, what it means to be in freezing water or what it means to have an avalanche. Uh, And they don't say, here's how to make it vary. Right. Yeah. But then we see, like, say, in the first Adventures League uh, adventure, Frozen North, there's an avalanche in there, uh, and it has it does not use these rules. Right, exactly. Or in the adventure that you wrote that's an introduction, there's an avalanche that sort of has a setting that doesn't have mechanics to it, and it pushes in a story and a choice, right? And so we immediately see that, that you know, yeah, exactly what you're saying. That it's strange right. when they give you these very specific mechanical pieces but i think that what dms want to do with this kind of environmental thing is to have more of a a softer toolkitty malleable thing you can shape to your encounters right uh so let's go over how they are presented in the book Uh, let me just Uh, say one more thing on the high level and that is that they have chosen to um take you know we went a couple sessions back through all of the exploration mechanics in our last of the exploration series we talked about here's how what it actually means to traverse a map Mm -hmm. none of these rules really dovetail those right in fact they kind of confuse those yeah (laughs) yeah it's true it's true it's true and and i i think it goes back to that point right where you know it I, I know someone who in real life who died in an avalanche. Mm. So I know they are deadly. You know, I know that that world over people are killed in avalanches. Yeah. But I also know that in D and D, I don't think a group of players would find it fun and challenging if their characters died in an avalanche. Right. Um, so rather than it being the deadly thing, uh, that it actually is narratively we want it to serve other purposes yeah but but you also if it unless there is that threat then really what is it it's a setting rather than an encounter yeah so yeah i wouldn't know how to run a combat during an avalanche <laughs> rather than have the avalanche be the entire the entire scene yeah, and I like that idea that you're saying because when I look at the avalanche rules, I sort of think I don't know how much this does for me on the whole of it. But let's let's go through it. Do you want to do you want to walk through it? Do you want me to walk through it? How you feel? Why, don't, why don't you Why don't you walk through it? All right. So uh, all right. So and one, you know, we're giving a lot of focus to this because DMs who are listening to the show, what we're expecting is you want to think through like, okay, what you know, I want to think through these mechanics and see how to best use them. So we're going to go through them in some detail. Avalanches. Uh, are basically this enormous storm that's going to go through an area and it says it travels at 300 feet around and it's 300 feet wide and it is going to travel until it can't move anymore. That's the rough definition we're given. So you have to just decide, I don't know, it hits another edge of the valley or something like that. Like you decide when it stops moving, but it's going to move 300 feet around, which is darn fast, (laughs) faster than anything else. Um, if you are in the path of it and you can't get away from it before it hits you, so you decide how far away it starts, it moves 300 feet. Whenever it gets to characters, they are swept in it, they are prone, and they basically can't do anything. Um, each round, the characters that are in it, creatures that are in it, are going to save and uh, for full or half damage of 1d10 damage. So it's not a whole lot for higher level characters. Um, and this is where you get into like how big is the area. So if it's 1200 feet that the whole thing could move, that's like 40, 10 damage or save for half. It's not a whole lot, you know? So you were talking about how avalanches are so deadly, you know, it's not super deadly unless you're low level. Right. Um, when the storm stops, which again, you decided how far it moves whenever it stops. Now everybody is buried by it. You're automatically buried, but then each round you get to make a, a athletics check dc 15 to free yourself so every imagine a party of six players they all roll athletics checks to see if in round one they get out if you succeed you're out done 
If you fail, you can try two more times. So you get three total tries. If you fail all three, you are now buried and you're just going to suffocate and die. But it takes a while to die. And for every five minutes that you're buried, you're going to take a point of exhaustion. However, someone else can spend one minute to free you. There's a lot of lack of guidance here. Like it's not clear how you find the other people because you're completely buried under cover and whatever. But I'm guessing the idea is that you should be able to be found. So then I think through these scenarios, right? Like, okay, you know, maybe I make it a pretty huge area and the storm moves 1200 feet and it deals 40, 10 damage. That's probably not killing most parties. I have a party of six characters. One of them makes their check. It still only takes them a round to free someone. So, or a minute to free someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if a single person out of a party of six frees someone and the other people didn't even bother to help, you could still free the rest of the party. But realistically, you're going to free someone. They're going to start freeing people and everybody's going to be free. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know how you kill a party with it outside of a really huge area of land mm -hmm. or having a very small party and everybody rolls poorly. Yeah. Three times. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's not something that I would want to do more than once. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not something I, I, I would want to do at all, to, to be honest, but um, unless, like I said before, unless it's part of something else. Yeah. Uh, I, I want them to be fighting wolves, giants when this yeah. happens and have everyone get caught in it and, and throw that sort of wild uh, chaotic battle yeah. as, as you're trying to surf the, the <laughs> avalanche as you're fighting, you know, that to me makes a, a really cool scene without it overwhelming the scene. Yeah. So yeah. Eric Mengi wrote a encounter for our jungle tracks product uh, where a mudslide hits mm -hmm. and it had some of these ideas like the storm has a width or the, the mudslide had a width. And so you could possibly move to either side to get away um, or, uh, or you could, climb trees to kind of deal with it. And then when it hit, there were some ramifications of the mudslide hitting you, but also there were mud methods that mm -hmm. wanted to attack you. And right. so it's kind of like you're saying this idea of like, there's a combat taking place and there are goals. And so you can think about, do I want to focus on fighting? Do I want to focus on saving myself by climbing a tree? Do I want to help another character? And that made it a lot more, you know, a lot higher engagement. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so, you know, with that, let's talk about blizzards, which seems to be a similar thing. Uh, it's, it's good to discuss them, but how well do the rules that they provide mesh with normal exploration rules? Um, the rules that they, they give are a blizzard will last for 2D4 hours. Uh, a DC 10 is needed each round if you're trying to concentrate on a spell. And you select a navigator who has a chance each hour to veer off course. Uh, if they fail, no progress is made. Uh, one party member might become separated. And then you need to check each hour to see if you can reunite. And then no progress is made towards your destination for the hour where you're trying to reunite with your lost party member. Yeah. Um, and this is, again, sort of, it's this sort of, Anytime you find that your play is sort of abstract, that requires very careful design, right? So like if I think about what the table is doing, right? Okay, you know, in theory, you, you should already be using the exploration rules. So, so you already have a navigator. And so you say, hey, this blizzard hits. You've got bad sight lines, so perceptions down and stuff like that. And you can't concentrate on spells. So if you're trying to, you know, like if you've summoned animals or something, you know, that could be affected. Um, and then you're telling your navigator, all right, let's do a bunch of checks, one per hour of travel. And when, whereas normally you, you have a chance to, per Tomb of Annihilation, it's once a day to get lost. And the core rules are just sort of whenever the DM thinks it's appropriate. So now you're doing it every single hour to see if you get lost. And if you get lost, if you're not tied together, you lost somebody and you wasted an hour and you have to make checks until you get reunited. And it, it's just, I don't know. It's like, it doesn't feel to me like, like the players would be sitting around the table excited through this process. Like it's just, it feels like doing your taxes a little bit, right? Like, yeah. Uh, unless 
I think this is true of any game design, uh, role-playing game design, unless there are consequences either narratively or mechanically, then what difference does it make whether you get lost a hundred times or zero times? Yeah. So I could see this being exciting if the characters had three hours to get from point A to point B or something bad is going to happen. Then this blizzard uh, mechanic as written becomes interesting. And Um, I'd add, if you can do things to help yourself through this, because as this is, this is just a role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the navigator is making, I think it's either survival check or perception. I forget what it is. And, you know, but if you're rolling every hour, you're going to just fail something. Like it's just, we're just talking odds versus strategy versus choices. And that's where I'd want to present some options. You know, you only have three hours. I love that bit. So now let's say, you know, chart, choose a course based on something or other. Um, this also doesn't address that old ranger question. So if I'm a ranger right. in my favorite terrain, do I ignore this? Right. It doesn't say. Right. And, you know, as the DM, you can do something like, well, you have advantage on your checks, whereas no one else would. Um, but you don't automatically be, you know, overcome a blizzard just because you are used to moving through the tundra. This yeah. is something out of the ordinary. So that's how I would handle it. But again, you know, it's, it all depends on the situation that you as the DM uh, want to show, want to provide this experience. Yeah. Do, I would have liked you, some guidance there to say to say that right 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 and we may as well move on to the next one because it's pretty much the same thing Uh, extreme cold when i read this i was very excited because i didn't have the rules for this when i wrote uh ice road trackers but the very first mission is you dealing with extreme cold because i feel like at least once during your time in icewind dale that should come into play. You should understand that as part of the setting. And when I read this, it says, you know, if you have immunity to cold, then you don't have to worry about extreme cold. It also says if you have, if you have resistance to, to uh, cold damage, you have immunity to any extreme cold damage. I'm like, uh, now you're, now you're starting to go outside of what I as the DM want. Mm -hmm. And then it says, if you're wearing cold weather gear, you are you don't have to worry about the extreme cold and that's where i went whoa 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 time out yeah time out and i've then, been on hoth yeah, yeah. and then you <laughs> read the scene the beginning of the book where they say everybody starts with cold weather climate gear and you go what? yeah yep and, and it, that's what it says the book says everyone will begin with cold weather gear so i was like well why even put extreme cold in there not then um because the players are always going to have their cold weather gear on most likely they're not going to be in a situation where they're not. So you've just taken that tool out of my toolbox as the DM. Uh, now I got around it in, in my adventure by making it wet, by getting yeah. their cold weather gear wet. So they have to deal with that, but yeah. <laughs> Which is a funny question. Nothing in the rules tell you whether cold weather gear makes you immune to frigid water. True. Which yeah. I, I would say that it shouldn't, of course. And I like right. what you did in, in that scenario. You know, in the scenario, the characters sort of fight in, in this frigid water. They kind of land in it and they fight in it. And then when the combat ends, you know, like an NPC sort of says like, wow, you look cold. And, and that's when you sort of, you know, your adrenaline wears off and you realize, oh, we're going to die if we don't do something about this. And they have to get creative. And I love that. That's a great way to deal with extreme cold. But yeah, the core rules here are, are it's sort of like, it's like you created an explanation of how terrible and harsh it is. And then you immediately hand wave it for just about everything. Though if anything, what this does is make life really hard for the DM because I I, like, if you have any monster that's not resistant or immune to cold. Right. Well, it, yeah, I, I thought that too. And then it said, except for creatures that are used to it. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So your your you know your Arctic goats yeah. are, can can run around in negative forty nine degree Fahrenheit weather, uh, 
because sure they're and, and that's the thing like negative 49 right negative 45 degrees celsius and they say wind chill can lower these temperatures by as much as 80 degrees like that mm. really begs for some scenes and some neat stuff and instead right. what we basically get is you know this is not going to have an impact because yeah. you're wearing and, and, here. and again it's that balance right it's that i don't want the whole campaign to be to weigh down with everything we do has to have a check for this. True. But you also want it to be part of the adventure. Um, you know, you, you want it to have an effect narratively, mechanically in all the ways that these things are expressed through role-playing games. You, you want it to, to mean something. So it's, it's terribly difficult to find that balance, but what you don't want to do is, take it away completely yeah so yeah and, and just to be clear because we didn't say this extreme cold if, if you somehow were you know wearing you know t-shirt and shorts uh you would make a constitution save at the end of each hour or get a level of exhaustion and that mm-hmm. has its own issue because exhaustion rules are, are kind of harsh they yeah they are not friendly to what we're trying to do in the game because just a single level will mean that you are making skill checks at disadvantage which now makes the player incentivized or de-incentivized to participate in the game which is the opposite of what we want as dms we want people rolling dice being active and and it sort of puts them in the penalty box and then it just gets worse from there you have things like half speed and and that it's just so it's a harsh mechanic to begin with that we don't necessarily want players to be exposed to often yeah if if anything, house rule exhaustion always to yeah. switch around the first two. So make it half move to at one level of exhaustion and then half on uh, ability Skill checks or disadvantage. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah disadvantage. So because usually if you're exhausted it's because you've already failed a skill check <laughs> you know you failed your constitution saving throw so you have a level of exhaustion and now that's just going to make the downhill slide go faster uh, as you fail more checks because you have disadvantage so yeah it's 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 an interesting conundrum yeah. and there there are there's very few right ways to do it, but a n- number of wrong ways to do it. Uh, and so that, that's the unfortunate thing of trying to find the right way. And often the right way is just a DM centric thing based on the story being told at the time. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, I would, I agree with that. And I, I would also encourage DMs to take these rules. Like these are fine. You know, like you can still have a good time with them. It's not right. like they're bad. I wouldn't, I would you know, I'm not, it's just, I think that, they don't running these over and over again will probably fall short. And so it's better is to take these rules as a starting point and then think through a scene, what you want to do and what you want characters to do. How do you want them to interact around the concept of extreme cold or an avalanche? And how can you mix it up with maybe a combat taking place at the same time? And then just keep and throw out whatever you need to make that be an interesting scene. Yep. Then we go from these, deep and troubling things to fishing for knucklehead trout, <laughs> which is, which is an environmental hazard in Icewind Dale, which, which I love yeah. because you know, Icewind trout are one of the main foods of everyone in Icewind Dale, but they are dangerous to try to catch because they will pull you in or leap right out of the water and, and take a run at you. And yeah. so, you know, this sort of thing is both flavorful and uh, and uh, mechanically fun to, to think about. Yeah, I like this a lot. And it's just, it's a fun idea that it's a true contest to fish knucklehead trout. Uh, and you can end up in the water yep. if, if you fail. <laughs> yeah. And then once you end up in the water, you have to deal with the cold. Yeah. Um, so those, so there's a frigid water uh, section as well, talking about you know dealing with that once you are it, once you are wet and cold, how you have to what you have to do to survive yeah. that. And it does seem to suggest here that if your clothes are wet, you can't function, you can't gain their benefit until they're replaced with dry ones. So it yep. doesn't 100% spell it out, but I think that's enough that DMs can go on that assumption. <laughs> which is the logical assumption so it works well right 
So that is something cool about the environment. Um, we talk about, or the book talks about illumination and it's, uh, it, it talks about it in terms of this everlasting rhyme that's happening. So sunlight is never going to be visible. So natural light will never be brighter than dim light. And then unless there is a full moon or an aurora uh, showing in the sky, it will be dark at night. Yeah. Which yeah. That's, it's neat. It's a fun concept with um, dim light. I have a personal feeling. This goes back to really fourth edition that light sources are too big an area of illumination and too easy. Like, you know, you get, your packs always have them. You always have a light source. It's just standard. The light spells really easy to do as a cantrip. Um, so you just, you know, it's, it's almost like light never matters. And so one thing I would, I would encourage DMs to do is play with that a bit, like start with this, right? Which is that you have your dim light always, even when you're outdoors and that's neat. And that gives various situations and flavors and so on. But then your, your, your players are going to quickly be like, well, we always have light or, you know, we always have torches or whatever. And that's where you can play with certain situations where, you know, the wind buffets your torch so much that it only illuminates half the distance. Mm -hmm. And you can play with that, right? It only gives off five feet of light or 10 feet of light. And now like all the players need to have torches or deal with being in the dark. And those kinds of situations can be really neat mm -hmm. if you play with them. Uh, and it could even affect magical. I mean, this is a the everlasting rhyme is magical. So in an area that's attuned to oral, maybe like we have that even magical sources are limited. And so periodically doing that, not all the time, but periodically can be really neat. Yeah. When we started playing with Roll20, the coolest thing for my players was using the dynamic lighting. Yeah. Because they really began to get a feel for what they could or could not see in certain situations. And, you know, the first time we used that, they were, you know, moving their characters around, watching all the shadows move <laughs> with the pillars that were there. And they thought it was the coolest thing. And now it's becoming more of a nuisance mm. uh, after a few sessions. And, you know, it, so as Teo was saying, you don't want it to become something that, just oh heavy sigh another thing where yeah. we have to deal with this but you know to have their light sources knocked out by the blizzard to fight something in a blizzard where you can only see five feet away from you even if you have light yeah. um, can be a really cool situation to have an encounter in yeah and then that's that's a good thing to mention that you know, this is where DMs, you want to scrawl a note. Like I often, I'll use a DM screen, partly because it's decorative, but uh, but <laughs> what it allows me to do is to drape things over the edge and I'll actually just take two pieces of paper and on one side I'll do like a map that they might use and on the other side notes for myself. And so one of the things I would do here is this dim light, like I would, I would make myself a note about it to remember to have this kick in. So like you said, if, you know, you're buried in an avalanche where your light sources are extinguished. Mm -hmm. And, right. and to just to, to bring that out and make that part of the experience. So you fall in the water while well, your, your light sources are yeah. jammed or maybe they attract, if it's a light spell, it might attract something underwater because here you are this, yeah. you know, gleaming bait. <laughs> yes. This is where the dire knucklehead trout uh, come into play. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah. There has to, somewhere in the DMs Guild, there better be dire knucklehead trout at some point. I like it. But next in this little survey of the situations and environment is open or overland travel. Uh, overland travel, if you're traveling through the tundra, is uh, a quarter mile per hour on foot, uh, twice that if you have snowshoes, and then twice that if you're on a dog sled. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry, it's a quarter travel per hour, quarter of what you would normally travel. Am I getting that right? What am I saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, which is, which is kind of strange. So there are a number of strange things about this. One of which is that they seem to not use the normal exploration rules. So they, but it's clearly overland travel. <laughs> that, that's this is what really knocks me off. That they didn't just say like moving around on in Icewind Dale, it's specifically called overland travel, which is a term that I would say is you're 
exploration map travel. And the way normally it should work is you would choose a pace. The party would select a pace. That pace determines how much you cover each hour. And even having a mount, unless it's flying, doesn't change this, right? So normally you'd cover like three miles per, per hour. Yeah. Then we get this Icewind Dale table that says that you cover a mile an hour on a dog sled, half mile per hour snowshoes, and a quarter if you're just sort of walking through it. So it's mm -hmm. just way slower, but, but you don't have a pace. So do you yeah. never choose a pace in Icewind Dale? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just Can throw you throw out all yeah. those rules? Yeah. Like Tomb of Annihilation took the pains to say, here are the exploration rules. And actually it's, it's sort of almost like the best guide there is on how to use the exploration rules. And then it right. adds some specific flavor to it. And here it's almost like they threw out the basic, the, the actual exploration rules. So I don't yeah. know how that's supposed to die, jive together. Yeah. And, and one thing I want too is you are wearing cold weather gear. You are wearing snowshoes to travel from one place to another and you are attacked. What disadvantage do you have now because you're wearing snowshoes? <laughs> because as someone who has snowshoed before, yeah. you are not dancing around uh, fleet footedly if you're wearing snowshoes. Right. You know, for me, that should mean half movement wearing cold weather gear right you are not doing backflips yeah they clearly get rid of any of that sort of realism right it, it, there's right. no note of that uh another strange thing is dog sleds and, and this has come up on twitter a couple times people have sort of caught on to this which is that so you know when you just look at this table you go okay it's a half mile an hour if i'm walking with snowshoes a mile per hour with a dog sled well sweet i should obviously use a dog sled but then when you look at the dog sled rules, we'll, we'll get into the specifics a little bit later, but the big thing that stands out is that they have to rest every other hour. Right. So it's just as fast as snowshoes. Yeah. Yep. So why bother paying or paying for the food for six dogs per PC? Right. Um, if to, to, to ride a dog sled. And so yeah. these are things that you as the DM, you can fill in the blanks. Yeah. Right? You can make a house rule that if you're wearing cold weather gear, you have disadvantage on acrobatics checks. You can make a rule that says if you're wearing snowshoes, you, your normal movement is half speed you know, in relation to combat terms. Yeah, and thinking um, through what does it take to take them off, right? Is that an yeah, action? Right. Do you want people to spend an action at the beginning of an, you know, their, is their first turn kicking off snowshoes? That might be a little lame. Is it a bonus action or is it, you know, disadvantage on your first round as you get rid of it. I don't know. You, you want to think through that and think sure. through what every single combat would feel like and whether you want that before you implement that house rule. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's true because I would want there mechanically, okay, you're wearing these snowshoes. You can move twice as fast overland, but what, what's the downfall, right? What's the, what's the balancing factor there? Um, so I would want there to be at least something. And maybe, like you say, maybe it's an action uh, to, to on your first turn, if all of your movement's taken with taking off your snowshoes, you know, something like that. Yeah, it's hard. It, it, I mean, and I, I get why they've made it not have a penalty. Um, but uh, but it does it does seem like it misses a little color. Yeah. Uh, then they get to mountain travel where it talks about how you will travel if you're going over the mountains and basically have everything you just heard. So on dog sleds, <laughs> yeah. you're only moving half mile on foot with snowshoes, a quarter mile and on foot without snowshoes, one eighth of a mile per hour. And then uh, for each hour where you're trying to go over or through the mountains, you need to make a survival check on a suggestion check. You're fine on a failed check. You must backtrack, which costs extra time. And if you fail by five. You know what happens. Avalanche. Avalanche, which we don't know quite how yeah. to run. But, well, and it know. gives you here a little extra rules where it says, it tells you that the avalanche starts 2d6 times 100 feet. And so I sat down with my son because, you know, when we're gamers and parents, we combine the activities into teachable opportunities. So this my son, son and I sat down and ran through mathematical scenarios because I'm a dork, uh, for, uh, 
but he, we had a great time together going like, okay, you know, how deadly is this or whatever. And basically what you find is if the avalanche is 900 feet or closer, right? So you roll a, a 2d6 and get a nine uh, or smaller, then it is close enough that basically you can't get a past the width of it, right? Because you can move and dash and each round is moving 300 feet. So at that point, you know, you could be in smack in the middle of it and run off the edge. But when it's 900 feet or closer, you can't. And then the avalanche is going to hit you. So, so it, I think that's helpful for DMs because you kind of know that if you roll a certain amount, yeah. you know, over a nine, the players aren't going to care. Right. They're going to run off on, unless they're old dwarves uh, or somehow moving yeah. sl- more slowly. But they'll they'll probably find a way to do it, and it'll be kind of a use. You can just describe it and not mm-hmm. worry about it. But if it's smaller than that, you're getting your avalanche. And so again, maybe you just want to change this up like what i would probably do is i'd say that if you fail by five you know you can get some sort of an event and then just have in your back pocket some different ways to threaten characters Mm -hmm. in interesting ways including throwing some monsters into the mix yep absolutely then we get a pronunciation guide uh which is always useful especially for those of us that need to talk about these things Oh, really? Oh, real. So, oral is not oral. It's O-real. O-real. Okay. We're all saying it wrong. So, that's why you want to have a pronunciation guide. Yeah. And and I I never pronounce these hard words the same way twice anyway. Mm -hmm. So, I'm sure at some point I have pronounced it correctly without knowing, but... I've also pronounced it incorrectly many, many times. Uh, you know, folks who don't, who weren't around in the dark ages of pre-internet do not know the fights we would have over how oh. you pronounce drow, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There would be people who would swear it was dro, mm-hmm. and it was like near fist level level of arguments we would have oh, back yeah. in the olden days. We were very yeah. bored. Yeah, and the, the hardest one for me to accept was lick. Oh, yeah, lich, huh? Uh, yeah, it's it's lick, and that's just the way it's pronounced. It's a German word. Uh, oh, so and, it really should be lick. Yeah, that's not okay. I know that's what I said, and I, I fought with a German-speaking uh, player for many many years, and basically said, "Yeah, I don't care if I'm wrong. I, I'm not going yeah. to pronounce that lick." Lichtenstein, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Well, all right. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to be wrong. It is sometimes. And thankfully, because (laughs) I'm wrong a lot. Uh, And finally, the rest of this chapter deals with character creation. So they give a great table of ways for you and your players to tie certain backgrounds to the setting. Um, You don't have to use them, but they are a great spur for ideas on ways to bring the character you know, into the setting in a unique way. They give uh, rules for the Goliath characters. It says all the character races presented in the player's handbook are well-suited for this adventure as are Goliaths. So the official nod of acceptance for Goliaths in this, uh, in this campaign. Teos has a thoughtful look. I, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking like Goliaths. Like you picked Goliaths. And I'm trying to think, why like there's no lore of goliaths before in icewind dale we talked about last episode how you know lore is malleable and for sure mm-hmm. out of nowhere like suddenly goliaths and i'm like i don't okay sure yeah. but okay yeah i they that Fine. seems to be a place where they've decided in this version of the lore that goliaths uh have resided for forever why not um, orcs yeah it th- that is or that goblin is goblin characters or yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. but fine. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, they, it gives a little section on starting equipment where it says that all characters start with cold weather gear. So therefore no con saves for cold weather are ever needed unless they get wet. Uh, there's a new table of trinkets. Two of my favorites were the figurine of the yawning walrus and a small ice sculpture that never melts. And I'll just big DM tip. Those are awesome. And so this is a super cool thing to do. But what you want to do as a DM is make a note on that DM screen of what they have. Yep. And slowly throughout the campaign, you know, make it matter somehow. 
cross it off, right? Like have it on a list of like how, you know, someone who's looking for this or, you know, if I only had this thing, here's what I would do or yeah. Some trap that can be disabled by it. Something like that. Yep. Great DMing tips right there. Uh, then they give uh, character sheets. Or, sorry, character secrets I can read. Yep. Um, and, and this is an interesting thing for me because character secrets are something I feel that should be in every campaign, but used very carefully. And they do give a, uh, a section on using, using the secrets that, that they uh, provide. And you just need to be careful with these secrets because some of them are pretty possibly game-breaking or campaign-breaking, depending on the people that you have. I mean, one is, hey, this character is a doppelganger. <laughs> really? What, okay. What could go wrong with that? I mean, that's, that's a whole different thing, right? Doppelganger is not a halfling. And, you know, maybe it's not like trying to kill the other player characters necessarily right but they do say you know if this becomes known the rest all the people of 10 towns will want to kill you or drive you away right uh, so it's pretty serious yeah I, and and some of them aren't necessarily secrets um or th they're not anything that you would even want to hide like one secret is called the littlest yeti uh if the party happens upon one or more Yetis, this secret might reveal itself uh, where you, like you were raised by Yetis. You're a Yeti whisperer. <laughs> uh, and it's like, well, that's, that's kind of cool, but why is that a secret? What, why are you hiding, right. hiding that? Uh, uh, the Drizzt Dwarden fan is ridiculous. Right. I mean, it's funny. Right? It, as satire, it's, it's amazing. And I laughed, but you know, having, Giving that as a secret or taking that as a secret, I don't know what that really adds to the campaign except for a little bit of humor. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could you could know all about Drizzt and and talk with people of Icewind Dale who might remember him or remember their grandparents talking about him or something. But you know, I, to I me, I, I mean, I, I like this. Uh, I, I can quibble about the design, but you know, you and I know there's only so much space in a book, and so it's always hard. Like, how do you make this juicy and worthwhile? And I think this is overall. I'm, I'm very happy with this. Uh, you get handouts in Appendix B, so they're nice looking, and they do say you can photocopy yep. them, which I think is classic, uh, cool. or fax them to your players, right? Like, yes, I mean, photocopy. Yeah, uh, but tell yes, us them. You can digitally share them with people or whatever. I guess they probably legally don't want to say that, but but you can, obviously you will. Um, and I'm, probably I would imagine in the past for books like this, they've made the, the handouts available as an online PDF. There isn't anything yet like that on the product page, but hopefully they'll do that. And then you can just mm -hmm. more easily, you know, without having to take pictures of your book. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think these are great as a, just think of them as a starting point. And again, what I would do is if, if I were running this campaign is work through these in, in your session zero with your players um, and maybe even via email privately could be a fun way. Like, like that's a good thing. Like do a session zero to establish general tenor either before or after this, but then separately one-on-one -on -one, work these out with, your, with each of the players, which is going to get them excited about just their character and their focus. And then whatever comes out of that as the secret they choose, let them add to it a bit or, or you know, shape it a bit. And now think of how you're going to make that resonate in the campaign. So whether it's Drizzt fan or doppelganger, you know, make it work in a way that's going to be neat for the party, not just the player, but the whole party as it gets doled out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tape it to your damn screen or, notes <laughs> or whatever somehow. So you don't forget it because I would forget it. Mm -hmm. And with that, we have finished the first chapter of, or the first section. We yeah. haven't gotten to chapter one yet. The first section of the book. So next time, we will come at it hard on chapter one, covering the Ten Towns, where we'll like talk about... Like an avalanche. That's right, which you can just run around. Uh, but other than that, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening, and thank you to our patrons who keep us afloat. Um, if you would like to help out, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash MMP, 
or you can just share our links on your social media pages. Anything that will help support the show, uh, promote us, keep us uh, in the hearts and minds of D&D players everywhere. We appreciate it. Uh, Teos, where can people find you? You can find me at my blog, alphastream.org, or on Twitter, at alphastream. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, what do you think we should do now? Let's go kill some monsters in the middle of a blizzard. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. down with D&D? Yeah, I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.